0: pediatricians carefully monitor childhood growth and development, but how do they know when a short child is too short or a small child too small? Today, we will discuss the causes of growth failure and how parents and physicians can address these early on to maximize a child's growth potential. This is Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner, Division Director of Neurology at Regional One Health in Memphis, Tennessee. I invite you to listen in as Dr. Francesco DeLuca, Division Director of Pediatric Endocrinology at Children's Mercy Kansas City, shares his experience with childhood growth failure. Welcome, Dr. DeLuca.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. DeLuca, to start, could you define childhood growth failure?
1: So, growth failure is a term we use to describe a growth rate that is below the appropriate growth velocity or growth speed. For a child's age. So this term is often used interchangeably with abnormal growth. Now another term that you often see in pediatric practice is failure to thrive. And failure to thrive describes as slow growth, typically in toddlers, in young children, and that typically affects both height and weight, and actually more often affects weight. In contrast, growth failure is more often used as a term to describe slow growth primarily in height.
0: Well, I remember going to the pediatrician and, you know, they have these growth charts, right? Do they still use those? Are those important?
1: Yes, very much so. That's the way we can really distinguish if the child is short rather than no short or if the child is growing with an appropriate growth rate over time.
0: So it's not only absolute weight, But it's the change in weight over time, as well as the height and the change in height over time that needs to fit in a certain, I guess, normal range. Is that right?
1: Correct. There are obviously different criteria by which we define a growth pattern being normal or rather being abnormal. One, as you said, is whether the height and the weight, for that matter, of a given child is within the normal range at any given age or rather below the normal range. So in that case, obviously, we will be managing or phasing a short child versus a normal stature child. On the other hand, it's equally important, and probably in many respects even more important, to know the speed, again, the velocity with which a child is growing. And to do that, we also use the same growth chart, and we plot a serial measurements of the child's height and weight on that chart and see if those measurements end up being plotted on the same curve or the same percentile. If this happens, then we'll say the child's growth pattern appears to be normal.
0: How much, you know, we live in an age now in North America where there's a lot of different backgrounds of people from different parts of the world. So do we have to adjust the growth charts for different races. For example, Asians tend to be smaller. Do they need their own chart or is one chart good for all children?
1: It, clearly, every country in the world, or every country, many countries in the world, they use specific growth charts that are much more appropriate for their own population and ethnic background. And there are clearly differences, as you suggested, among different ethnicities in terms of overall average or normal height. However, in the States, we use the CDC charts, which are based on a, I would say, multiracial population of children. That said, it's also fair to say that the large majority of the children that we represent that normal growth data in the United States, again, they are primarily Caucasians.
0: It sounds to me like a lot of energy is put into this for each child at every pediatrician's office. How often is it a problem? In other words, you know, what percent of children actually have a growth failure?
1: Actually, the data on the prevalence of growth failure differ among different studies. And this primarily depends on the type of children included in these studies. Just to give you an example, it has been shown that less than 5% of children with short stature who are otherwise healthy, though, have growth failure. So, a very small percentage of these children have growth problems. In contrast, if you check the prevalence of growth failure in other populations, the prevalence of growth failure may increase and may be as high as 40% when we evaluate the growth pattern in short sure children affected, though, by chronic conditions. So, having or not having an underlying health problems clearly determines the prevalence of growth failure. You have chronic conditions, your prevalence of the likelihood of having growth failure is much higher.
0: So a pediatrician who sees a child who has juvenile onset diabetes or sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis is going to be much more a clued in to measuring very carefully the height and weight and watching for growth failure. Is that right?
1: is perfectly right. In fact, I would say that growth failure may actually be triggered by a very wide variety of health problems or we can call it risk factors. Some of these risk factors are genetic conditions like Turner syndrome. Other possible causes of growth failure are nutritional deficiencies and nutritional deficiencies are for sure the primary cause of growth failure in less developed countries. And we mentioned already, having a chronic disease like severe asthma, anemia, chronic kidney disease, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, these are all rather common cause of growth failure. And ultimately, obviously, not to forget the, the likelihood of developing growth failure in case of some endocrine problems. And I like to remember growth hormone deficiency primarily as a cause of growth failure, and hypothyroidism.
0: Yes, and we're going to talk more about the thyroid gland in another podcast, so I'm looking forward to that as well. You mentioned short stature. Now, how is that different from growth failure? Now,
1: by definition, I would say by statistical definition, about 3% of the whole pediatric population is short. However, the large majority of these children, short children, do not have growth failure. So, short stature is defined as the length or height of a child that is plotted below the third percentile of the growth chart, with the third percentile being the lowest percentile of a normal range at any given age. Now, it's important to say, to emphasize, that children with growth failure are often short, but not all the time. Just to give you an example, one exception, in fact, may be a child whose height at any given day may be at the 50th or the 25th percentile. Thus, this child has a normal height, is in a normal range. But the same child may have had his height plotted the 90th percentile one or two years earlier. So clearly, he shifted his curve or percentile from the 90th to the 50th and 25th. Yet, he doesn't have sure stature, but he may well have growth failure. On the other hand, it's also important to say that many children with short stature have a normal variant of growth. We call them normal variant of growth, meaning that, again, they are short, but they don't have growth failure. And there are two very common examples of normal variants of growth in children. One is familial short stature, and the other one is what we call constitutional growth delay.
0: Well, I've heard that children also can grow in spurts, right? There are growth spurts. So how do you factor that into their sort of growth curve?
1: Yeah, the spurt actually that is commonly, I would say, knowledge and plenty of evidence supporting the existence of a spurt is actually the growth spurt that comes with puberty. We know that and it varies a little bit of timing in girls versus boys. But uh, mid to more advanced stage of puberty, uh, the stage of puberty is associated with what we call a growth spurt, which also defines a peak growth velocity. Otherwise, if we think about a younger child that is not supposed to be in puberty, actually the growth rate of that child, let's say a child whose age is anywhere between four years and up to again, up to puberty. Again, in all these years, the growth rate is rather steady, rather constant. In fact, a child who is growing with a normal growth rate during those years is supposed to grow five to six centimeters a year, which equals to two inches a year.
0: So, let's say a pediatrician has done all these measurements and the child is six or seven years old and she notices that the child is kind of dropping off the curve, not progressing the way he's supposed to. So, what should the pediatrician do?
1: Now, once the pediatrician and in general the primary care physician has decided, because he may have reasons to refer... A child to a pediatric endocrinologist because that pediatrician suspects growth failure. He or she may want to consider obtaining an initial diagnostic workup. I would say it is not necessary, but it he may help expedite the whole diagnostic process. So there are a number of screening laboratory tests that he or she can obtain, and these tests may actually be useful to rule out a number, I would say many, of the most common causes of growth failure. Again, to name some of the most commonly used screening tests, I mentioned a complete blood count or a ESR, and this test help to rule out anemia or a chronic inflammatory state, or obtaining electrolytes, creatinine, calcium, phosphate, to evaluate the child's kidney function and the mineral metabolism of that child. Another useful set of labs that can be obtained at first, is that labs for celiac disease. And celiac disease is an important gastrointestinal disorder that is often associated with growth failure. And last but not least, there are a number of endocrine tests that still the pediatrician can obtain, if he wants, even before referring the child. I think the most important ones are the thyroid tests, and again, we'll talk more in another podcast, and there are two specific tests I would like to recommend, One is called 3T4. The other one is called TSH. Those tests help in ruling out any thyroid dysfunction. And lastly, two tests call, one is called IGF-1, and the other one is IGF-BP3. These are very useful screening tests to assess the likelihood of the child having growth hormone deficiency.
0: Let's step back a second from the testing and go back to the history and exam. Is there anything that the parents could tell the pediatrician or that the pediatrician could actually find on physical exam that would be helpful?
1: Yes. I think when a child is found with sure stature, obviously there are a number of different findings that can be useful in determining which child may need to be referred for the possibility of growth failure. And these findings are part of the medical history as well as the physical exam of that child. Regarding the history, for instance, but they so-called systemic symptoms that may be somewhat suggestive of growth failure. I'm thinking about chronic fatigue, frequent headaches, loss of appetite, there are some gastrointestinal symptoms, maybe alarming, like abdominal pain, diarrhea or constipation, respiratory symptoms like asthma or frequent respiratory infections. And also, I'd like to point out that the prolonged, continued use of certain medications can actually raise the question about the possibility of growth failure. And I think primarily is the use, long-term use of steroids for a number of very different reasons, medical reasons, again, long use of steroids can cause growth failure. And if we think about possible alarming findings in the physical exam, but I'm thinking about the possibility of dealing with weight loss or poor weight gain over time. Again, this could be alarming signs for growth failure. Or we are seeing clinic an adolescent, and that adolescent doesn't have any signs of puberty or some what we call facial dysmorphism, some facial features that may not necessarily be normal, like low-set ears, frontal bossing, a triangular face, a web neck. Again, all this possible so-called dysmorphism may raise, again, the question as to whether a short sure child has growth
0: failure. Well, we're just about out of time, Dr. De Luca. Is there anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, I'd like to say at this point, at the end of our conversation, that in my opinion, there are a few take-home points that I hope that the pediatrician, the primary care physician can take out of this conversation. But the first one I would say is that many short children actually have a normal growth pattern, and therefore, they may not need to be referred to a specialist. And then I would say there are three main criteria when a referring physician, a pediatrician, should probably become suspicious of growth failure. One is if the child has severe short stature. The second criterion is if the child, as we discussed, has low growth velocity for his age. And thirdly, if the current height percentile of that child is actually well below what we call the mid-parental height. So in other words, if the child is growing at a percentile on a curve that is below what we expect based on the parent's height. Now, it's important to think about the fact that these findings, these three criteria may be present all together in the same child. So obviously the suspicion is very high. But I would say that even if one scenario I just described is present in that particular child, I think it should be enough again, to raise a red flag and prompt the pediatrician to consider a referral to a pediatric endocrinologist.
0: Thanks, Dr. DeLuca. This has been a very informative discussion. Thanks for being on Pediatrics in Practice.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This has been Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. To refer your patient or for more information, please visit childrensmercy.org to connect with one of our providers. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Children's Mercy podcasts. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. Thanks for listening.